Good morning and welcome to Research Ed Berkshire, hosted by Nick Hart and Karen Westbeezer. And more than a job podcast, are absolutely delighted to once again be at one of these very, very special Research Ed events, in which the very best minds in education from across the UK and internationally are brought together to discuss, to share, to chat, to network and to have a good time together as we discuss why teaching and education is the best job and the best sector that you could possibly be a part of. This is the highlights package from Research Ed Berkshire. We hope you enjoy this episode and can take something from it. I'm Daniel Bull, let's go. Listen clear now baby, yeah, yeah, cause it begins like... So we're at Research Head Berkshire uh, at Desborough College, beautiful school, and we're with the chief organisers, uh, Nick Hart, who we've interviewed before, and Cara Westbeezer, MBE. Uh, let's not forget that. <laughs> I'd say welcome both, but you've organised it. Thank you for having us here. You're welcome. <laughs> Nick, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to organise uh, Research Head in this area, and was, was it a real hassle? Are you, you're looking very relaxed. <laughs> I think it started as a, a brief conversation between um, uh, myself and Karen. Of, should we should we do one nearby? And um, we we somehow managed to get too far on the line to to stop doing it. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Karen uh, has been has been brilliant uh, in, in lots of the organisation. Um, but we, we wanted to bring it to to where we live and where we work because uh, sometimes these events are a little bit farther out. Um, central London sometimes and so bringing it to our doorsteps is the is the reason for for organizing this one it's um great to see so many locals uh, and and gather um speakers from around the country to to increase the connections locally and hopefully improve the schools in our area brilliant Karen we interviewed you not not that long ago now was it no was no it? She'd already been granted the MBE by this point, but hadn't yeah, been yeah. received it. Right. So the, the Lord Lieutenant, was it? He, he came, came to your to house. house. Yeah. Right, tell us about that. Because we were asking you about the Lord Lieutenant, weren't we? Remember, that was the main part of the podcast. It went off, it, it veered off on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember the rest of the topics that we were on, actually. No, no. Uh, yeah, it was, it was lovely, actually. So, because there was a backlog um, on awarding MBEs because of the, the pandemic and all of that, they, they offered a deal that you either get to take one person to the investiture ceremony or you get to take three people to a garden party at Buckingham Palace and um, so I chose the the garden party um, and I was quite happy for them to pop the MBE in the post which I thought was going to be the deal um, but then the Lord Lieutenant said can I bring it to your house um, and I said well only if you're in the area only if you're passing but on a coach and horses or just what, what, <laughs> he, what, what he did kind have of... chauffeur and everything right um, and he wore the proper mm. official suits no sword though my kids were quite disappointed <laughs> there wasn't a sword um, but actually my kids was the nice part of it because they they couldn't come to any of those other options their under 18s aren't allowed so to be able to receive it uh, with my kids there was just just, if you just remind our listeners, maybe who didn't catch the first interview, what, what were you awarded the MBE for? Um, so it was for services to special educational needs, um, and I think that's primarily related to the work that I did with Oak National Academy during the, the pandemic, so I set up a specialist curriculum for them. Just, we, we love talking about dynamic duos, and we've got <laughs> Hart and West Beezer here. How did this duo come together? How did this become a, a, a partnership, a powerful partnership? <laughs> it was luck. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I joined uh, Courthouse as the head, Karen was one of the governors. Right, okay. So, yeah, so I was being challenged and supported by Karen for the last few years. You raised your eyebrow then, you said challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Come on, Nick. The, the, you don't get very many uh, governors as knowledgeable as Karen is. So uh, it was wonderful to have her on the governing board. Well, but I did step down because I'd been, um, I'd been a governor at that school well, I've been the governor for eight years and I was about to step down because of Nolan principal say eight years is the, the perfect amount of time but the school went RI at that point I felt I couldn't leave a school in that circumstance um, and two years on Nick we recruited Nick during that time and Nick took the school to good and then I felt that I could take a graceful exit 
Um, so yeah, the, the, the school is amazing. Nick's really turned it around and I send my own children there now. That's the mark of a good school. That's always the mark of a good school. The mini school. pieces, as you call them, on Twitter. What stamp that is for you, Nick, isn't well, yes, it? Yes, yes, we're very privileged. No, they, no, no pressure. Do, do they drop it in as well every time? You know, I, I am the child of uh, someone who's got an MBE. Just don't forget that. No, 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 they're very humble. Very You're humble. in this position because of my mother. No? <laughs> An audio is not doing this interview justice because some of Nick's facial expressions... Her eyes glide everywhere <laughs> there's, there's a lot more being said than, than the words uh, coming from his mouth um, what are you most excited about today research Ed Berkshire what we'll say you've got t-shirts which is the first time we've seen t-shirts at the on the circuit we've done this year is more than a job mugs mm -hmm. first time we've seen those on the circuit this year Michael Childs will kill us if we don't say he did give badges pin badges to everybody but there's always something different a research at Birmingham they the kids had uh, hoodies, didn't they? Red hoodies. Lo lovely hoodies, yeah. They're, every single research entity has seen something different. Notes? I, I have. I, I've I looked you, in my bag already. No, no, I've just left them in my bag for now. I don't want. I wouldn't want to waste them. <laughs> but what are you most excited about this event today? Because aside from all the stress, you must be so both so proud now. Yeah, I think that for me, it's. Uh, the new speakers, people that haven't spoken before, people that live locally, that wouldn't have thought, would never apply to go and speak at the main research ed, but because it's here, it's nearby, um, those voices get to be heard because there's lots of people doing really good things um, uh, in and around Berkshire. And that's, for me, that's the, the most interesting part. Do you think this might be the way forward now, actually, that research ed might need to become a more localised thing where we ask people to come down and actually get involved within environments here rather than trying to drag everyone into one central hub. I think it's got to that kind of scale where we can't all fit into a central hub anymore. Like the tickets for the national last year just sold so quickly that I think having these local events, it's really important. And for people who can't travel, who don't necessarily want to take an entire day out of their weekend to have to do it, or even more if you have to travel, stay over and all of that. So to bring it to, to where the people are, yeah. it's a... Uh, yeah, we're really proud of that. Yeah. Just want to go on to national policy. You know, Karen, you, you've written your research ed book on, on SEND. You did your work for the Oak National Academy. SEND green paper, put it down to both of you. What are your initial thoughts? Or the, the, the white paper as well. Can we just get some of your, your initial thoughts and uh, understandings of that? Um, I think the white paper's a bit boring. <laughs> um, it, it, really lacking in uh, new ideas. Um, I don't disagree with anything that's in there. It's perfectly fine. It's just a bit bland. The green paper is packed with good ideas, um, but it's only a consultation and that doesn't feel fast enough for me. So a bit more speed. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the white paper is a little bit underwhelming and there's the one about schools being academies in, in eight years' time. So much can change between now and then. So mm. it's, it's a bit too far in the future for, for me. What, what would you like to have seen, Nick, in, in either of those papers? What do you think is a really important thing that hasn't been considered? Resources, funding. Like, so there's so many... Uh, David, David Carter spoke a little bit about capacity this morning and, um, and uh, some of those things like intellectual... Um, capacity and, and having the right people in the room and people develop talent development they're all fine but there does come a point where if you can't have people out of class uh, working with teachers if you can't have a senior leadership team that's visible around the school because there's not enough money then uh, th then that, that is a significant drain and, uh, and and if we were to have more secure funding I think we could do amazing things. Nick just uh, talking about Twitter we, we, we've always interviewed you before and we know you're doing uh, Great work in your role as a head at Charterhouse. Courthouse. Courthouse, my apologies. My apologies. No at, at Courthouse. And um, how can people catch up with you on Twitter? Uh, so uh, you can find me at uh, Mr. Nick Hart um, and then a blog which is easily found by Googling. This is my classroom. Uh, I try to put some interesting things out every now and then. 
And, and again, his facial expressions. <laughs> <laughs> when he said the word interesting. I find it interesting. So the, the whole reason of doing any of that is because I'm thinking. If someone yeah. reads it, great. Yeah. But it's purely to organise my own thoughts because so many things pop into my head throughout the day yeah. and throughout the week that it is, it's, it's started purely as a way of tracking what I was thinking about. You know, we, we were speaking to uh, people up in Warrington and the research at Warrington and, and loads of people said writing a book or writing a blog yeah. is the best way of just understanding yeah. what you're doing in your, in, in your daily role, isn't Absolutely. it? So, yeah. you know, loads of people should be doing it. Karen, where can we catch you? online social media yeah so at karen westbeezer is the twitter handle and then on teacher tap so my role currently is uh working on the teacher tap project so you can download teacher tap from your app store or play store and join in and we we recommend a daily read each day sometimes including nick's blog oh, yeah. sometimes sometimes and of course the last thing is so the great thing is people have turned up today they've turned up they in their droves and yeah. attendance looks amazing so has the conversation already started about research at Berkshire number two? I, I think we should probably get through the end of the day. <laughs> before. We've, we've had um, uh, people asking already uh, and, and offers of venues and stuff. It's, I mean, I think I, I'm quite surprised to have so many here. I, we, we, but we allowed for 300 tickets and thinking, OK, we'll get a few because it's the first one. But it's really busy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really busy, and it, and it and it's a fantastic event. And I know we're still in the morning session, but it, mm. well done for organising it because it is a lot of extra work on top of your the daily roles that you do. Nick Hart and Karen Westby's MBA. Thank you for coming on More Than a Job podcast again. Thank you. Thank you. And we're here at uh, Research Ed, Berkshire, Berkshire, Berkshire. Uh, and I'm with Cassie Young. Cassie has been a teacher, head and SENCO for more than 15 years and is the Executive Inclusion Lead across a primary map. She has a particular interest in inclusion of vulnerable groups, school turnaround and wider curricul- curriculum. Cassie's blogs can be found at moderncassie.blogspot.com. Cassie, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. It's very early in the morning, isn't it? We haven't had coffee yet. I've got to apologise because you're like you, you're my first interview of the day, and now we're interrupted by the hairdryer in the, in the toilet. <laughs> this is classic more than the job at Research Shed. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking forward to today. And you're on session three today. What are you talking about, Cassie? I'm talking about a piece of research that I did during lockdown about um, work return rates for pupils with SEND and um, how we can learn lessons from lockdown to support our pupils with SEND in the mainstream classroom. Is that going to involve something along the lines of some of the work moving forwards might be online or is it, are there different findings? There are four to five different themes that we picked up on about behaviour and environment, um, around different ways to facilitate learning to reduce cognitive load and teaching methods that teachers found really useful during lockdown that they want to continue using when everyone's back in school. And we don't want to take away from the people who paid for tickets for research ed today. No, we don't. Can you give give us a very quick summary about what those findings are? So teachers listening to this who couldn't make it today, what can they do, uh, you know, in in, in terms of SEND kids and, and supporting them moving forwards? I've always been an advocate that really small changes can make a big difference and the research that I've done is not about um, adding more, it's about actually refining, so precision of language, um, about thinking about environments and sensory needs in the classroom um, and relationships with parents. So that's generally the themes for today. That's generally the themes for, 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 for today. In terms of coming back from lockdown, and it's, it's a while ago now, but I think we're going to be talking about it for a while. Were, were kids, um, SEND kids, kids with additional needs, were they disadvantaged from lockdown more than other students? Or did, did we see some great practice? I think we saw strengthening of relationships between children and their support members of staff that work with them more regularly. Um, I think it highlighted to parents the real difficulties that schools find um, with strategies and interventions in schools. Um, but I think there are I think there are good things and bad things that came out of lockdown. I think a lot of children with specific need kind of missed out on, on big chunks of intervention. 
if anyone wants to find out more about you, moderncassie.blogspot.com, what kind of things are you talking about on there? I talk about inclusive practice, I talk about leadership, um, moving a school from special measures um, to good with outstanding features, I talk about just general leadership experiences. Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. You are the first interviewee from today. I hope session three I hope goes... it gets better for you. No, 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 no. That, that's, a, that's a brilliant start. Absolutely brilliant start. But thanks for coming on More Than A Job podcast. Oh, research head. No worries. Thank you very much. So we're at Research Ed uh, Berkshire and we're with Malvika Acharya, aka Molly. Yep. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, Molly, your chair of uh, R Equity. Yeah, R E Equity. R E Equity, my apologies. Yeah, aiming, no, it's okay. Aiming to provide authentic voices to adherents of all faiths and none. You're also head of R E and a teacher and learning coach, a teacher of politics, citizenship, a PHSE. Uh, an examiner at GCSE and A level and a regular contributor to the RE podcast. So thanks for coming on and speaking to us. No problem. Can you give us a little summary about what you're going to be talking about this afternoon? Um, Yes, so I'm going to be talking about how schools and teachers can diversify the curriculum within their schools. Um, So starting point is from my own personal experience. We're talking about how when I was young, there was all four of me and my siblings went to the same school and our head teacher still could not pronounce our surname and that is I think a critical situation for all students to help them feel valued members of the school community their teachers need to know how to pronounce their names properly first name and second name also avoiding anglicizing names my nickname is an anglicized form but that is not because of other people that is my parents chose that nickname for me and that is slightly different to what some of my friends when I was growing up experienced where people who couldn't basically be bothered to try and pronounce Indian names correctly and this is the same for African names and Chinese names and other ethnic community names they give an anglicised nickname so one of my friend's brothers who was a had a easy to pronounce name was Roger, and everybody called him Ken. And it wasn't a difficult pr- to pronounce name. And it wasn't his choice. And it wasn't his choice, they just did it. It was a basic teacher standard to know the names of every child in your classroom. Exactly, exactly yeah. so. Now, how are you supposed to give praise and motivate and, you know, work on their aspirations when you can't even pronounce their name Exactly properly? so. And it also helps you to build up the positive relationship. Yeah, of course. Um, so if we learn to pronounce student names, and you know, we make mistakes, yeah. and we do get it wrong, and I've got students in my school who are Maya and Mia, and I will mm. sometimes get that wrong, but I will apologise, because we are human at the end of the day, mm. and we do make mistakes. If we own up to it, that's half of the relationship yeah. building opportunity there as well. But that's no different from having identical twins in your class and mistaking one for the other. Exactly and, so. And having the joke when they go... No, you've got the wrong one, sir. Yes. No, I'm very sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, something I've done, and correct me if I've done the wrong thing, yep. is ask a student how to pronounce their name. Now, should I have done my research beforehand and, and checked beforehand how to pronounce it, or is that an acceptable thing no, to say to a student? that's perfectly acceptable to ask them, how do I pronounce your name? I think it's pronounced this way, mm-hmm. but correct me if I'm wrong. And they will happily share with you what their actual choice is of their name. It says in, 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 in your talk, you're going to talk share a range of practical ideas. Well, we don't want to take away from people who have paid to come here. Yeah. But can you can you give us a snippet of other practical ideas, apart from obviously learning the correct pronunciation of names? Um, things within the curriculum, which some schools are getting better at, particularly RE teachers, history teachers and geography teachers, are things like images they might use in their teaching, both within their teaching materials but also within their classroom whereas um, and it was harder in certain subjects like maths and science but it can be done Mm -hmm. so I'll talk a little bit about some more practical ideas that maths and science can use and I'll also kind of point to some other um, kind of resources that people can use as well and not to mention um, that we've got the diverse educators with Hannah Wilson and Benny Carra, mm-hmm. um, who are a brilliant resource, and people should go out and get their book if they haven't got it already. 
because it really does show how it is for ethnic minority teachers as well as students yeah. and that's really important for everyone to understand we did well. get told I'll, 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 I'll confess this we did get told off by Hannah Wilson because we interviewed her and we said mm. we, we, we hadn't interviewed uh, a diverse enough selection of guests so we did make a real effort yeah. following that telling off she, she was very clear wasn't she yeah she was <laughs> I haven't interviewed yes I'm being interviewed by three white men <laughs> sorry can't do anything about that one uh, so what, what's the biggest What's the biggest challenge that the curriculum faces in order to make it diverse enough from an ever diversifying nation? I think the problem is is that people, especially when you're doing GCSE and A level, mm. is that they want to stick to what the specification says. Yeah. But actually, we know when you look at deep dives from Ofsted and and other quantifiers, it isn't just about doing your spec your spec is not your curriculum your curriculum is all the other things that you can give to your students the diversity of the curriculum will enable you to do that so for example the re a level curriculum is full of white western philosophers there's not and, and they're all male there's no females on there and there's nobody of an ethnic diversity on there and we need to be able to put in some other examples and if nothing else it enables students to add value to their essay um, uh, information and that w- and elevate it and that will allow the examiner to see that they have read around the subject and they know other stuff not just learn rote yeah. fashion about what it is on the spec i don't think in the 12 years of teaching a level philosophy that i ever saw a specification change that came away from either a white man or female no no and we need to yeah. get those embodied more we also have in GCSE spec we have massive misconceptions um, for example in the GCSE RE spec for mm. the Hindu Dharma it's called Hinduism it shouldn't be called Hinduism it should be called the Hindu, Hindu Dharma, Dharma. Yeah. Um, the same with Sikhism shouldn't be called Sikhism it should be called Sikhi you know, people should be talking to representatives from those different religions and asking them, how should we refer to your tradition? And if they, the members of that community don't know that you're speaking to, ask to a teacher, a teaching expert who does know, because that will enable you to access that but better level of knowledge. If you look at the specification, if you look at the textbooks and go with it, yeah. who's writing those specifications and textbooks? They are generally not people from those diverse... No, and they're not asked and they're not brought in they're not asked to get involved and I think that's where areas need to be very clever in terms of their getting their groups together that have people from every diversity talking yes about their RE curriculums and their other bigger curriculums I mean we were talking um earlier to Amina Hammett who was talking about the work she's done in terms of actually getting different books looked at it's a primary level curriculum yes. that are from Muslim backgrounds that are from Sikh backgrounds that are from Hindu backgrounds you know and actually broadening yes. the horizon of children at primary school level because it's just not done at the moment no and, and exactly that and if you don't start it from EYFS stage yep. especially in those areas where there aren't many children of mm. ethnic ethnic diversities then they don't have that exposition so when they go out into the bigger world and they encounter people from different multicultural contexts, the students don't understand them and they don't understand how to relate to them, how yep. to talk to them, and they might show disrespect to people in different ways. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that our students are equipped to embrace all different cultures. Well, it's part of building the cultural capital, isn't it? Exactly so. Before exactly so. And that's what the work of the RE Equity is. That works in, con- in connection with NATRE, so it's a mm-hmm. different arm of NATRE there. Um, so it's in its first year, and we've got a kind of strategy and a vision of well, how we're directing that, and we're just going to put it into action in the next academic year, Excellent. which will a, be a good resource for all teachers to use. If there's a, a head of department who's looking to diversify their curriculum, whichever subject they're in yeah how do they contact you for advice and and, and to have a discussion um so they can uh, go onto twitter um and use my twitter handle which is at acharya underscore molly or and 
you know, you'll find me anyway because mal- there's not many just, malfeasors. Just to clarify, Acharya, A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. Yes, that's underscore right. Underscore Molly. Yes, that's right, with a Y, not an I-E. With a Y, with, not an I-E. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Um, and then also, um, and then you can do a direct message to me on there. Lovely. And that'll be sure. easy to do. Molly, you're doing a great job, obviously, and and chipping away, aren't you, at at some of the biases that that are still there. Yes. And and probably will be there for a number of years, if we're honest. Yeah. But someone's got to do that job of of, of change. Exactly. So well done. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So we're we're at Research Ed uh, Berkshire with some very special guests who we've managed to uncover. Uh, or they uncovered themselves actually, they introduced themselves to us. But it is Jonathan and Lucy Coy. Now, you might not recognise those names because they try and keep that secret name, but you are known, <laughs> very famous on, in Twitter yeah. land in education as yeah. Head Teacher Chat. So, welcome to the, right. the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, finally. Yeah, finally, we found <laughs> yeah. out who you are. Thank you. Thank you for, for retweeting us and all the other podcasts that you do because I think you do a great job. I think it's really kind that you, that you highlight other people apart from yourselves and the fact that you want to be anonymous. Sorry that we've uncovered you now. No, no, no. We're yeah. happy to be. Uh, you know out there now because we're no longer in schools and we we do this full time so brilliant um uh and the reason we do that is exactly that is to help and support others as much as we can that, that's such a kind yeah. of thing isn't it that, that, that you know you're not doing it for your own ego or you're not doing it to try and further your career you just want to highlight good practice when yeah. did it all start off and and, and why Oh, it started off about seven years ago because we were in school, being school leaders, and we wanted to find out some question to some of those bizarre questions you want in school. What is the next? It's actually HR it started with, because actually (laughs) we were turning to an academy and we wanted to know who the best HR service is, but Mm. we didn't want to do it under our own name, so we set up Head Teacher Chat. What happened then is that we started asking loads of other questions to, uh, from head teachers and school leaders, and they wanted to know those answers, but they couldn't put it on their platform, so they used our platform. Mm. And it's just grown from there. And um, we found the power of Twitter quite early on. Um, Lucy started talking to Dame Alison Peacock mm. about how to do school improvement mm. and that led on to a wonderful conversation mm. and how you could actually improve schools. Yeah, you? so basically at that point I was in a school that had just gone very deeply into special measures. I mean, we couldn't be more special measures <laughs> if you tried. And um, I'd been at the school for a long, long time and I'd done every single role in the school, including vice chair of the PTA as a parent as well as uh, voluntary SLT uh, for six years but that's another story and um, basically what happened was um, after we went into special measures I was desperate to turn the school round and at that point I was a school leader but I wasn't recognised in terms of my title and um, I'd read Dame Alison Peacock's book about challenging learning and I wanted to do the same so I wrote to her via Twitter and said, oh, is there any chance you could help me, you know, like support me because I want to do the same journey. And she said, yes, absolutely. You must go for it. So what then developed, as Jonathan said, was an amazing relationship between myself and Alison in terms of, you know, I then started this huge journey of changing how children learn in school. And it was a massive undertaking. And I was lucky I had a fantastic team around me to help support me. And I think that's key. Um, but we basically changed everything in terms of how we teach, like the next day. It was very, very quick. We did it very fast. Um, and um, the outcome of all of that was that we came out of special measures and went into a... No, is that down at the end of the corridor? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, that, that is the truth. We, 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 we always yeah. have an interruption. At Research Shed, we have an interruption. We've just had it. So, yeah. It's the so, cleaner last yeah. one. <laughs> so, the outcome of that is that we went into uh, being a good school within 10 months. And, um, and from that, I then started to talk with Alison Peacock, and she invited me to uh, do a little bit in, in a chapter of one of her books. I then spoke for her at one of her uh, conferences in Kent. And then it started to develop a little bit more, didn't it, her teacher yeah. chat? So then we realised, actually, there is a real 
benefit to being together and working together and helping each other out because Alison helped me an awful lot and she helped my school community too in a weird kind of way even though you know she wasn't actually there she helped me to help them so we then developed head teacher chats so that we could do the same for others and that's the whole point really it's about helping to support school leaders but also to help um, businesses because there's a lot of fabulous products out there that school leaders haven't got time or energy to find out about which then means the knock-on effect of that is children and young people and families aren't benefiting from something that might be there which is fabulous um, and they can't get access to it because the school leaders are completely uh, swamped in everything they're doing isn't it yeah true and if you see what happens on twitter we get loads of direct messages from head teachers. Some of the posts you don't see, but actually that are in crisis. Mm. And actually we then support them and help them. Mm. We, we signpost them to somewhere like education support or something like that, or we do some coaching with them. And no charge, it's just there to help them and support mm. them. Yeah. Because, and we do it any time of day or night, yeah. actually, because I was a head teacher and it was a lonely job and so in some ways if we can help one head teacher then we feel like we've done something back to mm -hmm. the education profession so that's basically what is our driving point mm -hmm. of. We're talking to um, Sir David talking, Carter. Sir David Carter, thank you. We were talking to Sir David Carter earlier on about this and saying that we spoke with Tom Sherrington earlier on in our podcast and he talked about that lonely road you say mm. as a head yeah. and you know he found that really really difficult what would be the one bit of advice that you would give then to a head teacher out there a new head teacher or an existing head teacher who's facing that very difficult part of their career what would you be your bit of advice for oh, the, the advice is to get someone a network of other head teachers who know what's going on in schools it doesn't have to be in your local community, it might be outside your local community, and just offload to them. Because the difference with head teachers is in a school, there's not many people you can actually talk to about those, that sort of stuff, that you're struggling. So you need to talk to someone. If that's us, that's fine. You can talk to us on Twitter and direct message us and we will answer your messages and help you out through that way but you need to get that support network of people who understand the job and really understand it and you can then be open with them and there's no judgement put on to you. No, and I think that's really important because actually you feel completely alone and you feel like you're the only person that's going through this thing that you're going through, but actually, 100%, I can tell you now, yeah. reading all the messages we get from school leaders, we're all going through it together but we're doing it independently of each other um, and not realising. And so if anybody wants to get in touch with us, you know, we can help support you. We don't offer advice, but what we do is we, we are a listening ear and we signpost you. Um, and we're just there for you. So if you need any help at any point, I have to say Jonathan is amazing and very dedicated to looking after school leaders at any time of night um, and has done for seven years. Uh, do, do, do people sometimes phone you so what becomes a twitter no, message then, then well sometimes occasionally but generally what they do is they direct message us um, and we get a lot of direct messages every week and and it's heartbreaking to read a lot of them i have to say um but it's lovely to watch the transformation afterwards so yeah. once we've helped someone it feels like being back in school when you're teaching children or you're, you're helping members of staff, whatever you get. There's some lovely feeling that you've actually made a difference. So it's nice to see that transformation from someone feeling like they can't go on, they want to leave the job um, or, you know, something terrible has happened to them. And we've just ha helped hold their hand. Yeah. You know what, we, 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 we'd love to host you regularly on the, on the podcast because mm. I'm sure you've got you know, the updates on, on head love teachers to. and what people yeah, are telling yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. And we'd love to have a, a monthly or six weekly yeah. podcast with you yeah. where you can come on and yeah. update everyone because I'm sure that'd be really popular for yeah. everyone yeah, as well. We'd love to. More than happy yeah. to. Just, I mean, this may be the first time that anybody's actually ever heard of you that could be that senior leader there mm. who's listening for the first time. How do they get in touch with you? 
Good question. So you can find us on Twitter. We are at HeadTeacherChat or we have a website which is called HeadTeachers.org. Um, we're on Facebook as well. Go to the group of Head Teacher Chat, mm -hmm. and you can find us on there. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram. Our main platform is the Twitter one. That's yeah. where we get most of everything. Are there certain sort of pinch points throughout either the academic year mm. or even times of the day? Because you're saying about Jonathan doing things, you know, any time, <laughs> day or night. Do you sometimes find it's when the head teacher comes in at ten o'clock at night? They're perhaps finally relaxed. Yeah. Are there certain pinch points that you find? Where all the stress is unloaded. Definitely. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, um, evenings. Yeah. At about eight o'clock in the evening, there's quite a few messages that come mm. through on that way. There's been more messages recently in the last two or three months than we've had the whole of the last two yeah. years mm. that we find out. We find that people are now beginning to be at the end of their tether on where they're going and how they need to be supported. And we just want to help them out in that way because as I said there's nowhere in school that they can go to go to chair of governors but sometimes that can be awkward you can backfire yeah. on them <laughs> um, not saying all chair of governors are like that mm. but it's, it's still someone in the school that's holding you account mm. so where do you go to and hopefully yeah. we'll sign both people to the right direction what are the, the positive more creative things that you do as opposed to just supporting people is your planners Oh, Come on, talk, talk to us about that. <laughs> oh, thanks, that's a surprise. So I've even bought one, actually, to, ah. uh, to write my own notes in because the reason I developed the planners in the first place is that it is my leadership notebook. And for our listeners that can't see, obviously, the planner, I am holding it in my hand and it's an A4 hardback uh, coil-bound planner. And in the back, it's got all of my leadership titles that I had in all my notebooks. <laughs> over the years so the idea is that when i got back to my desk and i thought oh gosh i must write something down i could just literally turn to the page and my page is already set up and i just throw everything onto that page that is in my head um, just, just go back lucy a little bit because i'm just going to read this out on uh, as, as yeah, we're interviewing yeah, sure. what we've got so we've got a we've got a page we've got leadership information we've got a page on school improvement plan yeah we've got a page on teaching and learning tracker yeah School evaluation form. School evaluation form. So we've got everything yeah. in there that you're going to need as a, as, as a school need. leader. Yeah. So because I don't know about you, but um, you know, when you're in school, you get bombarded by people asking you things, and by the time you get back to your desk, you've had like ten things happen, yeah. and you're thinking, oh, I can't remember all of those things. What are all those things? So the idea is that it's ready to go. So you know, oh, I've got to think about assemblies next week. Here's my assembly planner. I'm going to jot a note down. Or you know, my favourite one is. Um, the, uh, well, teaching and learning track is good, but my favourite one is my performance management record. I know that sounds really selfish, but actually having your appraisal is often one of the most stressful points in the year. And so if you can reduce that stress and actually make it quite a nice experience, then it's a good idea. So I, what I have is I have a, an ongoing tracker in my notebook in this planner for performance management. So everything, every time I do something and I think, oh, that's part of my whatever it is target that I was given, I just write it in a little note, just say, oh, on this day, I did that. Um, and then so when it comes to the performance management, I can go, well, here's all the evidence and here's where I keep it. And that's, if you want to have a look, it's there. Um, so I've got no stress preparing for it. When it comes to it, I'm all ready to go. And these planners are also bespoke to role as well, aren't they? they are. Can you tell us all the different, oh, the different types you've got? Yeah, so we've, we've got, because again, there aren't really any teacher planners for head teachers or school leaders. So we have head teacher, deputy head, assistant head, basically all of the leadership Senko. roles. Senko. Senko. We do have a Senko Principal. role. Principal. Um, and we can actually put a different title on. Um, but that is a little bit more uh, difficult to do, so you have to email to do that. Um, but yeah, so we've we got do all school the... business manager yeah. now. We've got a teacher one. Yeah. Um, the school business manager is actually designed for them, so it has all things yeah. about policies, updates, who's done training, um, finance meetings, and all mm. that. And we have mm. a teacher one as well, which is as a senior leader, what things you would want the teachers to know about. So it's again, it's have they read these policies? Mm. So it's a little bit of a different tack on. Mm. Um, 
other plans. Yeah, and it's still it's still designed to kind of support well-being and, and work-life balance, which is what these are all about. It's about, you know, getting everything out of your head and into something that you know you won't lose and you're organised and ready to go. And the teacher planner has the same sort of feel to it. So it's nice and gentle. It's got um, opportunities for them to write notes, but it also has at the beginning... You know, have I read these really important documents like keeping children safe in education, my safeguarding policy, do I know the policies of the school? And a little section for them to tick off. So they feel reassured that actually they know the stuff they need to know. The leaders think, well, I know they've, they've got a good planner to support them with that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's designed really to support everyone, really, yep. isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. how, how can you get hold of one if, if people are listening and thinking, right, I want one of these now? Oh, they you, can, you do give some away, don't you, sometimes? We do. Yes, we do. We do give some away. Um, we, do, <laughs> we gave some away for a competition the other day. And, uh, yes, we're, we're open to, uh, you know... Bribes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. We'd have to, we'd have to think about it. But <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, you can visit our shop. So if you go to our website, headteachers.org, and then at the top you'll see the shop, and there the planners are. And you can choose whatever title you want. And as I said before, if there's a planner there that you would like and it's not on our website, if you just send me an email to lucy at headteachers.org, and I'll get back to you. Brilliant, absolutely. What, what, I'll say it once again, what you're doing for the profession and head teachers and, and school leaders in particular is, is utterly unbelievable. Thank you. Thank and you. thank you for coming on the podcast at Head Teacher Chat, Jonathan and Lucy. Really Lovely. appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So we're at Research Head Berkshire with Sarah Johnson who's worked in education for the last 19 years. A qualified teacher, she's enjoyed roles in mainstream schools, pupil referral units, alternate provision, and psychiatric inpatient services, as well as children's care and home education. Sarah has a master's in inclusive education from the Institute of Education, and currently enjoys diverse roles, including that of being head of behavior and inclusion in a London borough, representative on an executive board of Youth Offending Service, as well as being the director of Phoenix Education Consultancy. Sarah, is there anything you don't do? You make me sound really important there. There's, you are really there's, important. There's loads of things that I don't do. Um, I'm also president of the national organization, Prusap, which represents pupil referral units and alternative provision. Um, and I'm doing my PhD slowly, but surely, very slowly. Everyone we speak to on these podcasts, James, always makes us feel very, yeah. very inadequate, don't they? <laughs> yeah. With our own careers. Yeah, I, I teach. Um, I've got nothing published, <laughs> and I question why I'm still in the career. <laughs> so you, you change children's lives on a daily basis oh, I know, whilst I, know. I sit on my high horse telling people what to do. And it's your work probably with pupil referral units and working with tough and challenging children that have led you to what you're talking about today, which is centred around mental health, isn't it? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I do is about supporting, understanding children's perspectives on what would be helpful for them. Um, so during COVID, for example, um, I did a survey which 3,000 children completed about their perspectives about not being at school during COVID and what their views were, were as they returned. Thereafter, um, I conducted some research um, which 800 children responded to about what can schools do to support your mental health and just over 800 children responded to it. Um, so my session today is about exploring children's perspectives. A lot of my um, the work that I do around research in particular is about young people's views and thoughts and perspectives and how we can interpret that as teachers and senior leaders. So can you just summarise, you're talking about obviously the, the, the findings uh, in terms of children's mental health, from their perspective, what are the findings? What, what have you learned? So that the kind of most significant factor I think is that teachers have a large part to play in children feel, feeling safe at school. So one of the things that is an overwhelming response about you know, what can schools do to support their mental health is having someone key for them to talk to. Um, that seems to be a key feature which is fairly cheap, isn't it? Because teachers exist in schools, so that's good news. Um, and often we try and have very complex solutions for making sure children feel safe, um, confident, happy at school. But often it's around the culture of how do we make sure that children have a safe space that they can um, go to? How do we make sure that we do reasonable adjustments if they've got anxiety and so on? So again, it's not anything you know, I would love to say this is new and no one's ever heard about it. Yes. But actually the answers to supporting some of children's mental health 
at a low level in terms mm. of mental well-being is fairly standard practice in lots of schools. So how do we make sure that that's consistent across the schools becomes really important? Mm. One of the things I find difficult, both myself and James work, work in a, sort of the pastoral department, don't we, in, in, in our school, and it's, it's kids who turn up to the office who claim to be anxious. Mm. But you also know that they need to be in lessons and we've got pressure from, well, the pressure is to do the right thing, isn't it? In that, in that you know, yeah. s- situation. How do we deal with that? You know, I, I'll, I'll admit I've probably taken students back to lessons and shown them not enough sympathy at times and said, you need to be in lessons. And equally, I've probably allowed kids to sit in the house office when they could have been in lessons. So it's, it's kind of knowing, isn't it? And it's a, it, that's the difficult thing for teachers sometimes. So I come from a perspective as well with a mum um, of, a, of a daughter who's 12 with anxiety disorder. And I know that it can be really difficult because you, you want to make sure that children have all the opportunities in the world. And anxiety is so difficult because it can be such a blocker to that. So you want them to be in class because you want them to, to learn and to contribute. And sometimes you know that when they're in class, that actually they settle. I'm just going to pick up, use the term claim to be anxious. Yeah. I think it's really important that we believe children's experiences um, and parents' experiences as well, because one of the things um, that people might say is, oh, they're fine at school, but actually what you don't necessarily see is the meltdowns that happen when they go home. I think essentially there is no right answer, but I think there are some tools that you can use. So, for example, um, if you know that a child has anxiety, um, then things like the individual health care plan about what does that look like for that child because children present anxiously in lots of different ways so you might be anxious in a different way to how I might present my own anxieties um, so some children might hide in toilets for example and so on so one of the things that lots of children talk about a barrier to um, feeling safe at school is not having a safe place so the fact that the children are coming to you and that is a safe place is really important but then how do you then kind of reflect and build on that so I would suggest things like start with the monitoring going oh, i've noticed actually you've been using this space quite a lot this week is there anything going on for you or um, i'm really proud that you're using this space when you're feeling worried but i'm really worried also about you missing classes do you feel the same well can we cut this down or how can we make sure that um, your classroom also becomes that safe space and i think with some children as well those additional difficulties around the kind of the sensory world around them too noisy um too busy and so on um you know i left the main room earlier because it's too noisy for me and I came to a safe place that's quiet um, and we don't really necessarily allow children to do that but we need to be able to make sure that they're able to regulate how they're feeling given the tools in which to do that. So it's best to, to, to answer my question. To, I'm not to, to answer your question, I'm going to refuse. To treat, <laughs> to treat them at face value, they've got anxiety, if they tell you they've got anxiety it's, you don't second guess that. You're just going to take them into the office or the safe place, have a question, and then maybe if, if, if it transpires, you ask them the question that you've mentioned and then and then work, work on that from there. Head it with professional curiosity. So have an exploration with that child. Now, it might be that actually the child really dislikes maths, for example, or whatever it might be, and actually they're using it as avoiding the class, but that's a conversation to be had anyway, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But actually that's really powerful in itself. Um, my view is if a child has come and approached you with a worry, with a concern, then you might as well believe it because you're never going to know if it's not true anyway. So you might as well believe it and then that child has the experience to be able to know that you're a safe person to talk to and use that as a jumping ball for the next conversation. And the fact that they've been brave enough to come to you in the first place mm. yeah. and trust you rather than anybody else. Just going back to, obviously, what you're talking about with <laughs> it's kind of finding the balance between what comes first, academic or their pastoral need, and we look back to the government's post-COVID thing with catch-up programme and plumping money into academics. Completely and utterly wrong. Should it have, should all of that money gone into supporting children's mental health on their... So the research that I did um, with children, and there was over 3,000 that responded, is actually there's a middle ground to take. So obviously you can look at Barry Carpenter's work around the recovery curriculum, where it's about nurturing support and so on, and very much the pastoral side. Or you can look at more significant academic. There is somewhere in the middle. And I know I talk about, um, we often on Twitter and so on, we talk about very polarized views, but actually there's somewhere that can meet there. If a child finds things difficult because they're worried about having missed up, missed um, education and schooling and exams and so on, then actually academic does become really important because they need to be able to feel that they're able to do the work that they want to do, go to university, do their GCSEs and so on. Um, 
I would say that the biggest concern for me is those year eight girls um, and, or, and boys because they've missed that transition yep. from primary into secondary. Um, so for me, actually, did we need to be um, more sensitive about what the different transitions were that children were missing? So for example, the year sixes when COVID started, perhaps they needed more friendships, social um, the social situation, as well as the, um, the readiness for secondary school in terms of academia. But actually, I would say that those children, those are the ones that are finding things really difficult at the moment. Yeah. Right in saying that you're working in the London Borough of Redbridge? Yes. Do you want to give a shout out to any schools or provisions <laughs> that are doing really well, that are doing great stuff, colleagues? I, um, <laughs> oh, that's put me on the spot. Um, I love working for the London Borough of Redbridge because it's actually a really inclusive borough. Um, it's uh, really engaging. It, I feel that it puts the heart of um, the needs of children at the heart of what it does. So I don't think I could single out a school, and I think, uh, and if I did, all the other schools would be like, what about me? Yeah, I've put you on the spot yeah, there, haven't have. I? But I suppose what I could do with my present of Prusap head is um, shout out the alternative provisions in, in Redbridge. So you've got Constance Bridgman Centre and Redbridge Alternative Provision um, that are headed up by amazing people. So I feel confident in, in isolating them. So, fascinated to talk to you, and if somebody wants to get in touch with you and talk about this further, because obviously you've got a wealth of ideas and knowledge that they could tap into, how do they get a hold of you? So, um, if they like Twitter, um, I'm at Phoenix Ed Sarah, or I've got loads of different free resources on my website, which is www.phoenixeducationconsultancy.com, which obviously slips off the tongue. And the book. Uh, oh yeah, I've got a book as well. Um, yeah, buy my book. Plug, uh, plug. Yeah, sorry, I forget about my book. Um, I've written a book called Behaving Together, A Teacher's Guide to Nurturing Behaviour. It is in my maiden name, Sarah Dove. Um, but you can, I would say you can buy it from all good bookshops, but no bookshop stocks it. Um, so you have to look online for it. But maybe ask at Waterstones and get them to stock it. Absolutely superb. I, I mean, I'll say it now, because I do say it to a lot of guests, but we, we, we need to interview for one of our regular episodes, because I think we, we could e easily get an hour discussion. It's fascinating, mm -hmm. just a few minutes so Sarah Johnson hope the talk goes well later Thank thanks you. for coming on more than job podcast thank you very much thank you so we're at research ed Berkshire with Sir David Carter Sir David was appointed to be the first regional schools commissioner in the southwest and took up the position of national schools commissioner in December 2015 in August 2020 Sir David published his book leading academy trusts why some fail but most don't uh, which I'm sure we'll ask you about Sir David but first of all can you uh, just summarize what you've been talking about you've been the keynote speaker this morning so congratulations on being the keynote and the first up in the main hall, what have you been talking about? Thank you. Um, so uh, the focus is really about school improvement, which is kind of what I spend most of my life doing, really talking about how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you build capacity? And, and, and I think it's really interesting at the moment as we, as we come out of the pandemic, uh, although the impact of that is still pretty tough in schools, uh, as, as you guys will know, thinking differently about what school improvement really means. And, and, and the phrase that I use more frequently these days is that school improvement happens in classrooms, not in offices. So this notion about how you create really strong professional development platforms for, for, for teachers and support staff and leaders to be able to develop and become the best professional versions of themselves is really key. And so, so we spend a bit of time and, and picking some of that. Um, and I like to do a lot of my training by asking questions. So I, I pose some questions to the audience as well, which not for answering today, but they might go back to their schools and sort of start to talk on and work through with their teams. And one of the things you said was schools have to get curriculum, culture and teach really well. Can you give us a bit more detail and depth to, to those three key areas of school improvement? Yeah, sure. So, so I'll, I'll take culture first. So, so, so culture, I think, is really, really important. And I, and I think culture is the product of values and behaviours. So, so when you're talking about leading a school, it isn't just about how children behave or how adults behave to each other. It's not, it's not just about that. It's about, about how people understand the climate in which they're going to work. Um, and it's very difficult, or arguably impossible, I think, to mandate values. I don't think you can tell people what to believe. It's, it's, it's inherent in their upbringing and everything that they think about. So I think this is about how do you build a culture where where people are willing to be collaborative, where people are maybe willing to take risks, where actually attention to detail and getting the consistent approach to classroom practice right every day is, is a really important element of that. The curriculum is really important, I think, because I think for too many years we, we, we assumed curriculum was something that happened alongside school improvement, but I think it's actually at the heart of it. If you've got a great curriculum 
and it's really well designed and it's appropriate to the needs of the school and the setting that you're in, then I think the curriculum is really a really powerful lever for change and improvement. And then the final part is fairly straightforward, I think, which is you know, if you've got the culture right and the curriculum strong, you've got to teach it really well. Um, and, and, you know, of all, and, you know, as I said on the stage, I've been in education for 40 years this summer. There's only one intervention that makes a difference to kids, and that's great teaching. Everything else is kind of an intervention to cover up for the fact teaching may not have been strong enough in the past. If you get teaching really consistently good in your school, and I don't use the word outstanding, consistently good is outstanding teaching, then I think you've got a chance of, of your school going, you know, way beyond just, I said about there being a race to good. I understand the, 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 the pressure upon a school if you're requiring improvement to get a good judgment, I get that, but actually, Ofsted good is still not world class. Well, talking of Ofsted, do you think the, the role of Ofsted and how schools are, are, are desperate to get certain gradings, do you think that prevents some school improvement? It prevents some schools taking risks because they play it safe, small c, conservatively to try and get to, to a, a safe space? So I'm, I'm going to say yes, but I want to qualify that. So, because I think I, I think we have to, I certainly have to. I think recognise that you know if I'm if I'm in a school that's in a lot of category three or category four judgment, you know, talking about world class education, forget it. That's 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 a, that's a non-starter. I've got to get my school to be judged good, so that my community has confidence in, in my school and me, and children want to come to it. So so I get that. I think the the, the difficulty that we have is that I think people are adjusting their strategy and their thinking to fit what they think Ofsted will like and get them a good judgment. And, and, and I think there are, there are four things that I think, uh, when I'm working with schools and school leaders these days, about what, what you need to do to prepare for inspection and accountability. Number one is, what's the experience of every child in your school? Second question is, what's the experience of every adult who works in your school? Third question is, what's the view of parents who've chosen your school? And the fourth one, which is quite interesting, I think, particularly in the post-pandemic year, which is how does the community benefit from having your school in it? Mm. I want to just delve into some other things you were saying um, in, in your, your keynote talk. And you're talking about capacity and you made reference to capacity givers and capacity takers and trying to find that sweet spot in the middle on the stage. So David had a, a Venn diagram and obviously the sweet spot was that balance between the givers and the takers. Well, first of all, what are givers and takers and what do you mean? And how do we get to this sweet spot? So the origin of that thinking, I suppose, came from the idea that, that, that I think what I saw happening in the Department for Education when I, was, when I first went into it in 2014, around that kind of time, was the capacity was only ever generated when there was a grant attached to it. And, and clearly that's not long term because money comes and goes and it goes on different priorities. So it, it felt to me like we were missing the point that the best capacity that we have, the best practitioners are in our school system. So, so I started thinking about this capacity giving, capacity taking idea as a means of thinking about system leadership, I suppose, more than anything else. Because it seemed to me that if you were working in a school where you're doing really well and, and, and your Ofsted grades are up, your, your outcomes are great, people want to work there, you're full, your budget's secure. Actually, it feels to me like there is a morality that says, for the schools in my community who are not like that, I have a role to play. And, and I need to think about what I offer those schools. In other words, what do I give that maybe I, I no longer have access to, but I lend that support, I lend that capacity. And then the other side of it was the capacity taking, which, is, which I think is a harder one, because I think there's a, there's a tendency sometimes but when your school is in difficulty or, you, or you're facing a crisis, rather than open your eyes to a more wide angle lens, what I think you tend to do is you, is you actually go more introvert and, and you think that you, only you can solve this problem. That's the point actually where you need to be really open-minded and you have to have the humility to accept that you need help. Uh, you can't put enough people on payroll because your budget won't, won't do it. So you have to have other engagements and other partnerships to do that. So there's a bit about if I'm in a really strong position, I have capacity I can give. If I'm really struggling, I need to put my ego to one side and accept it, uh, help. But the reality is that the vast majority of schools, probably 99% are, are both. They've, they've got some capacity to share and they've got some needs. And that's when I, when you described a moment ago about the sweet spot in the middle. When you get that relationship right between how much can you give away without causing yourself a problem versus how much are you going to bring in that will help you drive improvement faster than you would have done before. 
that's when I think you get the, the, right, the, right, the right And part. And you made reference, didn't you, to how sometimes when an outstanding school works with a special measures school, it doesn't mean that the special measures school don't have a, you said you refer to it as golden nuggets of skill, expertise, brilliance throughout. Is, is the lens then too much focused on they're outstanding, they do everything right, special measures, they must do everything rubbish? Do you think that's, there's a bit of a stigma with, with so that I think, I, think well? that, I don't think that's an unhelpful thing to say. Um, although I do think, you know, you didn't mean it that way, but I think it's a binary point of view. Yeah. Um, I'm, where I'm coming from with it is, if I look at the outstanding, if, if, you know, if we agreed this morning there's 100 outstanding schools and we thought, right, we're going go, to go visit more, I promise you we'd find, we'd find pockets of weakness yeah. in every single one of them. Probably not so deep that it would change their judgment. And probably because everything else is really good, it, it either covers it up or it masks it a little bit. But if you go into a special measure school, which is, which is chaotic, you will find really good people, yeah. in spite of everything else, doing a great job. What I often see in special measure schools is, you know, particularly in secondary schools, you know, the best departments in the special measure schools might be your art department or your PE department, which is great. Frankly, that's not going to get you out of trouble because the accountability system we've got says it, it favours English, maths and science over art and PE. So even if my PE department is the best on the planet, it's not going to get me out of trouble. So what you need to do there is look at the DNA of what's happening in PE, to use that example, and work out how do you spread that more widely across the school. But the idea that, that this collaborative support mechanism only goes one way is a false dichotomy for me. Yes. It, it, it goes both ways. Yeah. So David, I think it's safe to say, so David is the first knight of the realm we've ever had on the podcast. When did you receive your knighthood and what was it for and what was the experience like? Yeah, it was amazing. So I got it in uh, the Queen's birthday honours in 2013. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you, I had an envelope that arrived on a Saturday morning. I remember when it arrived and it had the, um, the portcullis emblem on it and I thought... I haven't paid my tax, <laughs> or, or, or something's gone wrong here. And I, and I, and I opened it, and you know, there, there, there it was. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. And, and you know, I, my background was I went to a, I went to a pretty ordinary comprehensive school in South Wales. Um, I, school I didn't do very well in school. I didn't I didn't go to an Oxbridge, um, but I knew I wanted to teach. I was passionate about music and sports. So I taught music and PE. Um, and I just grafted away and, and became a head and then set up a trust and all the rest of it. And I, I guess what, it's, it's more common these days, I think, cause, and, and rightly so, that more education leaders get recognised. But I, I really genuinely felt I wasn't just accepting it for all the people I'd ever worked with. I was, I was accepting it on behalf of the sector because you see so many other people, whether they're in the sports or the arts or in business, get these goals. And, you know, I, I, at the time I'd done about 30 years in the public sector. You know, what, it, it, was, it was just a privilege and... Uh, yeah, no, it's just, just, just incredible. And my family loved it, and uh, you had a great day at the palace. So, um, we've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast from lots of different levels throughout education, on the pressures of education. And one of the interviews we gave, um, we had was with Tom Sherrington, who's obviously the author of The Walkthroughs, and he was talking to us about his previous time as a head. And you, you mentioned it earlier about this collaboration between Outstanding School and the School of Special Measures, and so there are those golden nuggets. Yeah. He very much felt when that Ofsted inspection was coming in, that they became their own island, that they were very isolated, and that no matter where he looked, he couldn't find the answer to change what was happening. So what advice would you give to a head in that, who's fa who feels like he's facing the inevitable, let's say, and can't find his way out? Well, that's a really good question. And I, you know, Tom's done some amazing work and I've known him for a long time, so he's respect for Tom Sherrington. Um, it's, it's a multifaceted answer, I suppose, in a way, so I'll try and keep it simple. But I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things, um, I'm going to talk about it on a personal level and a professional level, maybe. So on a personal level, when you're leading in that environment, that's the point at which you have to fall back, I think, upon your team and your, and your family and friends. Mm -hmm. Because I think what we tend to do as educationists is I think we seek perfection and it's very difficult to, to, to attain. Um, and actually what we need is people who in the nicest, kindest possible way, tell us, just stop working. Go and have a pint. Go and watch a football match. Go for a swim. Go to the gym. Blah, blah. You know, just, just chill out for a bit. And sometimes what happens is the, the time just expands and we just fill it because, and we never get to where we need to be. And I think the professional element of it is, goes back to something I said this morning, which is if you, if you believe that your strategy for what you're doing is right, then absolutely stay loyal to it. The, 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 the risk, I think, is that people 
think the strategy isn't going quick enough and the, and the outcomes aren't improving quick enough and the things that you're trying to fix aren't getting better quick enough and they abandon it and start another one. If you get the strategy right, I promise you the exam results will catch up. Mm. And what you need to do if the inspection arrives in the middle of that process is you have to have what I call those kind of proxy indicators of yes, our, our outcomes aren't where we need them to be, but look at what we've done in the last 18 months. Um, and, and at the end of the day, if you end up with an inspection team that has already made its mind up about your school, then you just, get, you just have to say, it's a moment in time, we move on tomorrow. Our community needs us more. Yeah. Yeah. So David, it's been fascinating uh, this morning. Um, you on social media? I am. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Carter6D. Brilliant. And anyone who wants to speak to you on there, you converse with your Twitter followers, your many Twitter followers. I do. And, and obviously your fascinating career, which we only just touched on really. And I was going to just mention what a South Wales answer when you said music and PE. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's got to be, hasn't it, from South <laughs> Wales. But um, thank you for giving up your time this morning. Brilliant speech this morning. And uh, you know, best of luck in, in what you do with Ambition Institute at the moment. Thank you very much indeed. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like...